AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Matt, let's hear about the uh, botnet story that you found for us. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. There's a, a researcher named Ankit Anubhav, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, and he wrote about a conversation he had with somebody uh, who claimed to have taken over 30 or so IoT botnets. Uh, the interesting story here is that it seems that these kits are being provided or sold on the underground and people are sort of, they must be brand new at this and they must be setting it up you know, with default credentials or very weak passwords. So like, you know, someone provides you the software and they give you a little tutorial that says set it up here. And you know, you want to set it up with this username and this password and they just sort of go with it because they're not technical. So it's a little bit of a twist. Typically with botnets, you see whoever sets the botnet up, usually they're a little more technical savvy. They, you know, they know kind of at least the basics. They make the same kind of configuration mistakes that we warn our own developers and, and admins against making. So the, the end result is that people can brute force their way into uh, a botnet, uh, which is a little bit crazy. That is nice. um, the guy who he talked to, this underground figure, gave a little more detail saying how he was able to collect the IP addresses for the C2, which makes a lot of sense. You know, you set up uh, a honeypot, and you mm -hmm. wait until it gets infected, and you look at where it calls back to, and then you go and you try and brute force the C2 on that box, um, which is usually something like SSH, or maybe there's a web, like a web panel or something. Uh, but it was pretty interesting. Um, and it kind of reminds us that like, even if you're somebody who theoretically knows things about security, whether you're, you're you know, on the defense side or you're some hacker out there, uh, people are still people, and people will still do things that are kind of boneheaded. I guess that's sort of comforting in a way, then. I guess. I mean, it's, it is and it isn't, because like, that means that anybody else can go out there and create a, a botnet, and then someone who's marginally smarter than them and, and has maybe read this article can go and steal it right away from them, and that's just one more botnet out there under the control of somebody who's you know, obviously looking for, to do something with it. Not all cyber criminals are like supervillains and geniuses. Uh, some of them are just buying kits, installing them off of a YouTube uh, instruction set, and then running them like that. So, so what we have here is we have the, the, the barrier to entry lowered, right? Because you can sort of off the shelf get your own botnet going. Right. But like you said, people are still people. Mm -hmm. And you know those who are a little less technical, if you will, will make the same mistakes that non or less technical people will make. Mm -hmm. Things that we see pretty often. Yeah. So, interesting. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, YouTube's full of these videos, isn't it, of how you can set up your own botnet and deploy your own malware and that kind of thing. So, I'm not surprised that people deploying this aren't always the sharpest tools in the box. Yeah. I saw um, a piece of malware recently where it opens Windows Calculator when the spear uh, is delivered. Because <laughs> obviously they're taking the exploit code, but they hadn't packed them in their own malware, so they just used the default um, settings. And yeah, all the victims got was this calculator was popping up on there. Oh no. <laughs> scary. scary. That's funny though. That's, that's like the epitome of, you know, insert something else here before you go use it, and clearly somebody didn't. Yeah, yeah. I think on the law enforcement side, this is good news. Okay. Because if you were to, I mean, from the law, law enforcement perspective, you could, do what you said, set up that honeypot, figure out what those C2s are, mm -hmm. and then try well, to get into I, them yourself. I don't think that law enforcers would necessarily go in and get into those things themselves unless they had the, some sort of legal authority to do so. Uh, in most cases, that's still breaking into somebody else's computer. Even if somebody else true. broke into it first, you true. are now breaking into it yourself. So, so don't do that. Don't do that, yeah. Let's, let's yeah. go with don't do that. Yeah, simple. Yeah. It's interesting that Japan's recently changed their law, so they're talking about doing that kind of thing now. 
given their police um, the authority to go and hack into C2s and take them down. So, and then they will start seeing some of that happening as well. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, given the international nature of the internet itself, like, mm -hmm. can they only pop boxes that are physically located in Japan, or do they have the ability to do that for anything that threatens Japan? Like, right? where does that line get drawn? Yeah, when they get a judge to sign that off, I'm sure they're going to have to uh, be pretty careful about what they agree to. Yeah, that'd be an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of gray. I think the lessons are mostly, they're not for regular people for this story, they're more for people who are involved in research about botnets, that you may be up against something that was you know, thrown together based off some very basic instructions with a, an incomplete understanding of how the software works. Hey Chris, I heard you have a story about uh, attacks on Confluence. Can you tell us about it? So about two weeks ago, I got an alarm from a system we run that lets us know when there's a new vulnerability out that we haven't got detection for yet. So that was for Confluence, which is quite a popular piece of wiki software. We run it internally, lots of other people do. So a lot of organizations use wikis to keep track of you know, information, collaborate, whatnot. And uh, this particular malware affects the underlying software of those wiki systems. So when we started investigating, we could see the source IP addresses, and we could also see the context of some of the attacks going on. It clearly was actually a real bunch of attacks all happening at the same kind of time. So then pivoting off of that, we could see that other users um, reporting exactly the same kinds of exploits being delivered on the Confluence support forums. So people were talking about how the, their servers have been compromised, how the attackers are mining cryptocurrency, or in some cases have caused ransomware to run on their wiki systems, which is pretty bad, when in some of these systems they're quite key systems for those companies. And then looking through it too, it was clear that it wasn't just one person doing this. There was at least four or five different groups doing it just on that first day we started to see those attacks. And some of them um, were linked to other people who we're pretty sure who they are. Some of them seem to be quite new actors to the game. Interesting. Hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the exploit that's being used? Yeah, so I mean, it's just Confluence. Um, I haven't looked at the detail of it, but as um, it's RTE goes over HTTP, so it's pretty easy to, um, to detect. It just, there's an endpoint on Confluence servers which basically lets you run a command. Um, the stuff that happens after that, I guess, is the, the really interesting thing. So we're seeing some of the attackers are then connecting manually to those machines. So in a couple of cases, I saw them starting reverse shells on Linux machines. So they're just as if they were directly on those boxes. On some of the Windows machines, they're installing something called Empire PowerShell, which um, gives them full control of those systems. And then they're then manually going through and installing ransomware in that particular case. Typically, this is you know this, the usual cycle of a bug gets found, gets used by attackers, gets patched. Uh, Atlassian that makes Confluence, they've released a patch. So if you run it, if you run it locally, you need to get that run. Um, if you haven't patched this internet exposed, you're probably already aware because you probably have a ransomware machine. That's right, yeah, because ransomware doesn't bother to hide itself. It's very much, you know, by the way, you need to pay us now. So, yeah. What do you think, Andy? Oh, it's interesting. Uh, quick question, actually. What's the uh, delivery method of this malware? The exploit, normally they write into cron, and then they, um, so they set a task and then run later on to then download a script normally of pastebin, which then installs the actual malware. The actual export delivery itself, um, I think they're just running some Python scripts to send out a pre-packed um, HTTP payload. I think they're just ripping it straight off of GitHub. It's a Metasploit now as well, so you know, everyone can do it. There is actually a post on the Confluence support site that I found that shows you how to exact to identify this malware, how to clean it up, which is a great move. Um, it's not just fixing the bug, it's helping clean up the aftermath, which I think is the right move for a software vendor. So what can you do to 
protect yourself as a user or an organization? Well, most of the second phase stuff's really easy to detect. So the mining cryptocurrency, um, that's pretty easy to detect. For one thing, if you're looking at the machine, you can notice that your CPU utilization shoots way up because they're you know, burning through your CPU cycles. If it's a key system, like you know, a really important system, maybe we'll look at application whitelisting, where you can say so if someone does manage to exploit this, it's unlikely they'd better install that second phase malware. Yeah. I'd also look at maybe look at PowerShell usage for particular users, you know. Yeah, I mean true. sometimes, you know, so certain groups of employees shouldn't be using PowerShell ever. Or like a service account that's just for like running your Confluence server probably also shouldn't be running. Most likely shouldn't yeah. be. So that's not, that's another thing to sort of key in on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Because the new PowerShell where you've got really good logging these days, Microsoft's done a great job at adding that. Obviously, you can restrict those scripts and running too. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something to look out for on those key servers. Execution cool. policy. Yeah. Set it. All right. Thanks, Chris. Just keep an eye on the patches that are available. You know, these sorts of things make it to the news. It's time to, to do your due diligence and make sure you weren't affected by the bug. So Andy, I've heard you got something for us about some takedowns on the dark web. I do, yeah. Uh, a bit of a joint effort. So we got the uh, German police, Europol, some agencies from the US, Netherlands, France, um, actually ended up seizing the servers for the dark web uh, marketplace known as the Wall Street Market. Nice. Pretty interesting. Yeah. So uh, what happened with this whole market, which is actually kind of interesting, it was, a, it was about a year and a half long investigation into it. And it all sort of culminated in uh, an exit scam, uh, yeah. which for those who don't know, an exit scam is where you basically take people's money and you don't give them what they're paying for, essentially. Oh yeah, you close down your market and anything that's in the balances for any of those accounts is, you take it. is now yours, yes. And that's exactly what they were doing. So the main wallets that they were using for payments, they were actually using a sort of an escrow system where users would pay into that wallet and then the vendors could actually pull out of it once the transaction had gone through. Mm -hmm. So there was some, you know, some uh, security there. What they were doing though is they were taking the balance of those wallets and they were shipping them off to different wallets. And while they were doing that, they were telling their users and vendors that there was maintenance going on and, you know, they're trying to fix it and whatnot. And given the recent trend of exit scamming, the, the user base, the vendor base weren't buying it. Another twist to this, though, is that the moderator, one of the moderators for the site actually ended up posting the credentials to get into the back end of the Wall Street market, as well as the IP of the actual market itself on Dread, which is a Reddit-like community. This, of course, means that you know anybody who sees that can actually log into the back end of the Wall Street market. Um, so just a few days later, you were seeing errors on the site when you tried to hit it, and then it was just taken down altogether shortly after that. Wow. Uh, it later came to light that there were a few arrests that were made, which is pretty interesting, which is you know, good, it's kind of what you want to see uh, with that sort of thing. Um, ZDNet actually uh, speculated a little bit and said that it's possible, they were trying to figure out why you would exit scam, like what's the purpose of it, right? And they were saying is there was a different market that was actually uh, had, had announced that they were going to be closing down, so the dream, uh, dream market, I think that's yeah. what it's called. Um, they were they were announced they, they announced that they were going to close down soon, and so what happens is all those users actually have to go to other other markets, uh, and it causes a lot of attention for those other markets. Mm -hmm. So they thought, well, instead of taking in that influx of user base and attention, why don't we just you know get out get out okay. with, with as much money as they can? And they actually ended up pulling about fourteen million dollars worth of stolen crypto. So. From everything you've described so far, it sounds like this all could have happened in a vacuum. You know, people on the market, people trying to um, 
black male people in the market. Where does law enforcement fit into the big picture here? So, the, I mean, like I said, there was a there was a year and a half long investigation into this whole thing. Uh -huh. um, they knew the physical server location, which is in the Netherlands, mm. um, and that's where we were talking about the that joint effort between the German police, different U.S. agencies um, from France, Netherlands, Europol, seized those servers, and then the, the they market did is the taken servers. down. So okay. they did seize those servers, uh, which means the marketplace is actually taken down entirely right now. Uh, unlike some other darknet markets, which are still up, mm. but are you know maybe maybe they're honeypots now. <laughs> you know we don't know. Yeah. So. Interesting stuff, yeah. yeah. Always, always kind of wild to see how these things shake out, especially that you've got like a takedown that seems to be almost coinciding with the internal collapse of the market itself and, and all that other stuff going on. So that's that's pretty wild. Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff going on, definitely. Chris, what's your take? Yeah, it's been really interesting seeing the rise and fall of all those dark markets over the years. I mean, there's a Silk Road going down when the the guy that was writing was asking for help on Stack Overflow to write a dark market and then getting caught. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the honeypot markets like Hansa being run by the Dutch police who are to trap people in there. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't know what the total trade must be on these dark markets these days, but I would guess it's less than it used to be, given that there must be such a lack of trust now if you're one of the people on there. I mean, you don't know who on there is going to be law enforcement. You don't know if you're running the site or going to be law enforcement. So, um Overall, I guess it's a, it's a win for the police. If you've got a site that's being potentially run by law enforcement and no one quite knows if that's the case or not, then no one really trusts that they can do business there. And hopefully that, that serves to shrink the size of the, the markets that are, that are out there. Let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So, the top 10 most probed ports for the past week. The top two haven't changed, so Telnet is 23 TCP and 445 is SMB. Those have been up there for quite a long time. Uh, 3389 moves around a bit. That is remote desktop protocol. So uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting that that one's kind of been slowly going up the list. I, I don't expect it to eclipse the other two anytime soon, but um, its rise has been interesting. 80ICMP is ping. 22TCP is down to, that's SSH. 8089 is up to, I believe that's related to Splunk. Uh, at least that's what I w thought it was last time I looked at it. So. Um, hmm. 8545 TCP is Ethereum uh, GF, I believe that's the Ethereum daemon. So apparently there are vulnerabilities if you misconfigure that, that allow people to just steal the money straight out of your uh, Ethereum wallet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 81 TCP is an alternate web port, 5555 is Android Debug Bridge, and 80 TCP is plain old HTTP. Most sources probing, so this is more of an indication of what the big botnets are doing. Top three haven't changed at all. That's 40, 445, 23, and 8080. 8080 being another web port. 5555 is Android Debug Bridge, and that's up three, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, we've talked about 8080. 5431, I believe, is Broadcom UPnP, which is a specific IoT volume. Um, still up there, huh? Still up it's been there. Up there for a while. Yeah, someone's making profit off of, of breaking into those Broadcom boxes. Mm. Uh, 81 again is a, a web port, 1433 is MS SQL, and again 22 TCP is SSH. Um, I wanted to look at this one. I don't know what the heck this is about, but port 41983 UDP. Single source in Switzerland is really pounding on this over just the last few days, and you can see that no one had really paid any attention to it beforehand, uh, but it's consistently large numbers of, of scan flows. I wasn't able to figure out what the the objective was there, what they were trying to scan for. I only knew what the port number was. So that'll obviously be uh, something to look into. 
it's possible this is some sort of misconfiguration as well, given that it's only one source. And we've seen people scan for stuff. Like there was a, like a phone coming out and they scan on the UDP port instead of TCP or vice versa. Oops. Or they just, they, they fat finger something. But I kind of want to know what this one is, but I, I figured I'd include mm. it. That little, this little guy right here. Oh yeah, that's an interesting one. POC right? maybe, or? You know, I don't know what that is. It could be a proof of concept. Interesting. Um, but it's so tiny. Yeah, it's, 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 it's less by than comparison, like it's 10 flows per hour. Um, so maybe, uh, I, I didn't correlate to see if that's the same exact source, so I'm not sure. If it was the gotcha. same exact source, I would, I would think your theory is right. Yeah, I only, because it's a single source in Switzerland, Switzerland. I, oh, yeah, I took this, this to mean that this, this was all one. Yeah. Gotcha, okay. Uh, 445 is sort of wavering the way that it usually does. In the last couple of hours or day or so, we actually have a spike. Um, we'll have to keep an eye on that to see if it, it trends, but it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, it's a significant jump from it was about 65,000 uh, scan sources up to 80. That's something. Yeah. Uh, 8089 we talked about before. Last time I was on the show, we found that there was some sort of attack you could use against a Splunk Universal Forwarder. Um, and those sources were in the US, and this is more of the same. Uh, we, we continue to see that kind of activity. Um, those regular spikes, I think, is some sort of research project. But the rest of it, I think, is probably more likely attackers. Uh, 65530 TCP, this is another mystery. Hmm. Um, there's about 800 sources. Most of them are in China. Uh, the port itself is, I can only find two references to it. One of is this Windows might backdoor, this malware. But it's 2002 malware. So it's unlikely that this is what they're looking for or that there are many of these uh, infections still out there. Yeah. There's also a tool called TCP Crypt, and I saw some sample configurations for this tool that suggest that people might be running it on uh, 65.530, but I'm not sure. Um, there you can see that somebody was, was definitely interested in it for a little while, and now we've got this, this significant scanning. But here's what's interesting. Last week I looked at 65.533, and that's in blue. And 65.530 is in red. And you can see, hmm. as the one trends down, and both of them have sources primarily in China, as the one trends down, the other one starts off as activity. This is a river chart, so you, this, is a, this is a sum of. But to me, it looks like this might be the same population scanning this port. Yeah. Whether they're looking for something in particular, or they're going sequentially through port numbers, mm -hmm. looking for whatever happens to be there, I'm not really sure. Um, but I. I it was just interesting enough to include it in the report that this is potentially the same group scanning for some very high number ports for some objective. Yeah, it's, it's the same volume, roughly the same volume too. Yeah. In addition to the same pattern, with you got the spike, the small spike, and then right. The and I think the the summation that they're at the, of the river chart at the bottom explains the slight difference between them of about a, a you know, right, a couple thousand. To me, that suggests they may be a related scanning operation going on there, but I wasn't able to prove it. You know, there's not a, uh, an exact vulnerability that was announced that is then causing this probing. So that's a little interesting. It's something to monitor. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.